Good morning. Are you looking forward to the spring weather kind of making its way in here and staying for good? Like, what was Friday all about, right? It was like a cruel trick uh, that just popped in, and then Bryant was, like, sad. Like, he, he's like, Daddy, is, is summer over? And I couldn't resist. <laughs> I said, yes, buddy, winter is set in again. <laughs> and his face just dropped. <laughs> and I was like, no, I- I'm sorry. This is just a, a, just a blimp on the radar. It, we, will, we will be having summer. It's on its way. Spring is coming. He wants to play outside. I do too. <laughs> and just before I, so I don't forget, after service today, we're going over to Five Guys uh, for lunch. And I'm inviting all of you to come. Um, so if y'all want to just come and hang out, we probably won't have a table big enough. Um, but if you want to just come and bring along and have some five guys, let's do it. Um, and so uh, anyway, I'll put that bug in your ear now that I've made you hungry and thinking about that. Hey, let's go into the Word. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Hosea. And as you do, I just want to take a moment. I want to bring us all up to speed on where we're at in our story through the Chronicle of Redemption because... We, we've covered a lot of ground in the last few months. When we, we, we look back at what we've seen. We, we started with creation and we looked at fall and we, we saw the flood and we saw the Tower of Babel and God's promise to Abraham that he's going to make of him a, a people, going to give that people a place and then that place and those people um, are going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And then we saw from there how God took that people, formed them through the the working of having Joseph go before them to Egypt and ultimately they moved to Egypt to flee a famine and they they began to multiply in the land of Egypt. God then brings Moses to deliver them by God's divine hand out of Egypt, brings the Exodus, takes them to Mount Sinai as they're on their way to the promised land. There they get the law, they learn how they're going to be living under God's rule, how they are to be a blessing to God's people, to the nations of the earth. And then we, we finally, they, they, they make it into the land as they're led by Joshua. And once they enter the land, no sooner are they in the land, they begin to, to take a headfirst dive spiral into the depths of depravity during the period of the Judges. And it brought us to where we were last week, where the people with no king were crying out for a king. We want a king. So God gives them a king. And the first king that they receive is Saul. And he's the people's choice of king. But we learn that he's a failure. Second comes David. David is God's choice to be the king, the one through whom the, the, God makes an everlasting covenant, a forever covenant through the promise that from someone from the Davidic line will always sit on the throne. Somebody from the line of Judah will always reign. And then came Solomon. And under the kingly rule of Solomon, David's son Israel was united and they experienced what would be the pinnacle of blessing that we would see in the Old Testament. Nothing gets better in the Old Testament than it was under Solomon's reign, at least for a period of time. But no sooner does Solomon's reign end when he dies, the nation is divided, north 
and south. And you have the northern tribe of Israel comprised of, of ten tribes, the northern kingdom, ten tribes there. You have the southern kingdom, two tribes. Northern kingdom's capital is Samaria. Southern kingdom's capital is Jerusalem. So you have Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Remember that as we go through. Meaning, both of them having their own kings in play, which means effectively the northern king has now rejected the line of Judah as king. They've rejected God's covenantal plan, God's covenantal promises. But even during this time of division, what do we see? God is patient with his people. Like hundreds of years patient and loving with his people, despite their unfaithfulness. God gives them every single opportunity to repent, but they don't. And by 722 BC, we see God's judgment come into play over the northern kingdom as they are overtaken by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians take over the northern kingdom, capture them, exile them, take them out of the land as a means of God's judgment. And then... A few hundred years later, or just actually a little over 100 years later, in 605 B.C., 597, and 586 B.C., we see a series of deportations that take place where we have the, the northern kingdom, obviously, was taken over by the Assyrians, but now the southern kingdom is being taken over by the Babylonians. Well, why not the Assyrians? Because the Babylonians come along, and they, as a means of God's judgment, take out the Assyrians. This is a really long story made very short here. The Babylonians then come down as a means of God's judgment and they exile, overtake Judah, the southern kingdom. So now what we have is God's people living in God's place no more. They're all exiled from the land. Effectively, it's the Garden of Eden all over again. God's people have been removed from the promised land. So the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, his bride, his wife, have have gone from the pinnacle of the Old Testament under King Solomon to being completely removed from the promised land in just a few hundred years. And the question that we need to ask in this moment is why? Because they refuse to make God their first love. Because they refuse to make God the triune God of the Bible, their first love. So my question to you today is, is God your first love? Is the triune God of the Bible your first love? And what we're going to do to kind of help answer that question is, is, is bring our journey through the Old Testament to a close by looking at the book of Hosea. Because this book is going to help us answer this question. Is God our first love? And at first it's like, why Hosea? (laughs) Of all the other books that we have in, in the Old Testament, why this book? And here's why. Because the book of Hosea provides one of the most powerful descriptions of God's relationship to Israel that you're going to find anywhere in Scripture. And ultimately what we see is that it's a picture of of Christ's love for the church. So that's what we're going to see here. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through these first three chapters. 
We're going to break them into four different parts, kind of like we did with the book of Ruth, part one, part two, part three, part four. And what we're going to do is just kind of tell the story of what's taking place here because if we grasp these chapters, if we understand these three chapters, we'll not only understand the main point of this book, we're going to understand the main point of the Old Testament. And ultimately, we're going to understand the main point of the Bible. And if you want the Bible in, summed up in one sentence, you want the Old Testament summed up in one sentence, here, here it is, God's promise to bring his people to himself through Christ. I'll repeat that to you if, if you're writing them down. It's God's promise to bring his people to himself through Christ. So part one of our story, God's command to love. God's command to love. Hosea chapter one, beginning in verse one. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Bere, the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah. In the days of Jeroboam, the son of Johash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now pause right there. Make no mistake about it. What we have just read in those last two verses are shocking. Shocking statements here. God's telling Hosea to take a whore for a wife and to start a family with her. We don't see this laid out throughout Scripture. This isn't the pattern that we see. This isn't something we see commanded over and over again. It's a one-time thing. This isn't something that should be modeled. This isn't an evangelistic strategy that we see taking place here. What we see here is an extraordinary command of God that's being given for a very specific purpose. And what we need to understand is Hosea is a prophet in the northern kingdom that we had just talked about, in a kingdom of unfaithful people that have rejected the line of Judah. They have rejected God's covenantal plan. And chapters 4 through 14 of this book are the messages of judgment that Hosea takes to these people. But before he takes these messages to the people, God says, hey, before you take this message of judgment to the people, you're going to experience what it's like to be married to an unfaithful wife, just like me. You're going to experience this. So go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom. That's what God's told him to do. Go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom. And check this, Hosea obeys. He obeys the Lord, which means Hosea is going to live out a real life parable of God's relationship with Israel. Israel being God's chosen people, but a people who have despite God's faithfulness, his continued faithfulness, they have continued to whore after the gods of the land. That's what we see in Scripture. They have continued to partake in ungodly practices, have proven over and over again to be spiritually adulterous people. So when we look at Gomer here, we're seeing though a real person, like the real wife of Hosea, a real marriage taking place here. She's also the living example of the nation of Israel and the living example of every single one of us in this room today. We're all Gomer. We have all forsaken the Lord and pursued after the gods of this world. And we are either faithfully married to God. He is our first love and we are exclusively committed to him today 
or we are spiritual adulterers. There's no lukewarm and faithful. We may may not be in the bed of another, but if our minds are wandering, we are not exclusively committed to God. And that brings us to part two. The marriage, the children, and the judgment. Hosea has married Gomer. He's done exactly what God has called him to do. And I don't know if she ever truly loved him. I don't, I don't, necess- I don't see the evidence there, but it doesn't matter because they're covenantally united together in marriage. For better or for worse, until death do us part. You remember that day when you said those vows, married couples? I remember that day. January 3rd, 2004. It just keeps getting further and further in the distance. But I still remember the day. I remember the moment when my bride, those doors opened for the church and she was there in all of her beauty. She came down that aisle. She took my hand and she looked me in the eye and we covenanted together. For better or for worse, so death do us part. It wasn't just words. We later found out Britney Spears got married on the same day we did. <laughs> Quite literally. By the time we got back from our honeymoon, hers was over. Because it was a joke to her. She didn't realize what she had done. These words meant something, for better or for worse, until death do us part. And I'd be lying to you if I told you everything's been easy. Because it hasn't. You know why? Because two sinners said, I do. (laughs) Chief of sinners right here, married a sinner, don't want to come down too hard on her. (laughs) Guess what? I've said some pretty dumb stuff. Zach's been married for like three months and he would testify to that, right? (laughs) He's like, yes. (laughs) And Rachel's giving him like the get out of jail free card. Like, no, honey, (laughs) still newlyweds. But marriage is difficult. There's no perfect marriage, but we made a lifetime commitment to one another, to love and to cherish, to death do us part. So help us God. And so did Hosea and Gomer. They're married together. They, they end up having three children. The, the first one is Hosea's. We're told that, that that is his child. So they've started having a family. They're doing, he's doing exactly what God has told him to do. But the next two children, we're not too sure who the father is. There's no real evidence pointing us to the fact that they are Hosea's, which means despite his faithfulness to his bride, despite his faithfulness to his, his wife, Gomer has already broken her vows. She's still whoring after the world. And it's the names of these children that we're going to look at because they show us the consequences because each one symbolizes the ramifications of Israel's adultery here. So follow along as we pick up in verse four. 
And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy, for I will no, have, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she has had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So three children is what we have here. All three with names dealing detailing God's judgment for Israel's unfaithfulness. And the first one we see is named Jezreel. And there's, a, there's a lot of context behind this name, as you can well imagine. But much of it you can read in First and Second Kings, if you want to kind of go back and read that. But in short, God is saying, my wrath is coming upon you. My wrath is coming upon you. I'm taking your name, I'm taking your name away from you. You're no longer going to be sons of, of Jacob. You're completely unworthy of my favor. I'm not going to call you Israelites any longer. You're going to be called Jezreelites. That's what you're going to be called. And if that's not enough, the second child is named no mercy. As the Lord says, I will, have, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. Meaning just what the text says, the Lord will no longer have mercy on the northern kingdom of Israel. They are Jezreelites, and upon them he will have no mercy. But on Judah, the southern kingdom, he will have mercy. He will save them. But look how he's not going to save them. He's not going to save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And the funny thing about that is the people in the New Testament, even the disciples, they think that's how it's going to happen. They think it's going to come by sword. They think it's going to come by bow. They think it's going to come by the horses and the horsemen. Uh-uh. How's it going to happen? By the divine hand of God. Through his covenantal promises that he has made to David. The ones that we looked at last week. There will come an everlasting king from the line of Judah. And then there's the third child. Named not my people. How'd you like that to be your name? Not my people, not my child. Which is an explicit and direct statement to Israel saying, you are not my people and I am not your God. So all three names that we see here are testifying to the judgment of God upon the northern kingdom of Israel for what? For their infidelity, for their unfaithfulness. And in the big picture of this story, it's the judgment that comes in 722 B.C. when the Assyrian Empire comes, overtakes the northern kingdom, and takes them into exile, removing them from the land altogether. But in the midst of the judgment, what do we see? Same thing we've been seeing throughout all of Scripture. What do we see? We see the salvation coming forth. As we pick up in verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head 
and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So part three. The faithful and merciful husband. And this is why we looked at all the covenants that we looked at last week. Because remember all of God's promises, his his promise to remain faithful and true to his word, his covenantal promises that he made to his wife Israel. What does he not do here with Israel? What does he not do to his wife? He doesn't destroy her by flood, just like he promised. He doesn't wipe her out completely like she deserves. Now he does disinherit several generations of Israelites Upon them, he has no mercy. Why? Because they are not his people. But he doesn't forsake them as his people forever. He keeps his covenantal promise. And this is what we need to understand from the text. God is faithful to his word always, always. But throughout chapter 2, as we make our way kind of through it, summarizing it, we see the tragedy of Israel playing out as, as God is the faithful husband always faithful, has proven his faithfulness over and over and over. But what does Israel continue to do? She continues to whore after the gods of this world. She continues to find satisfaction in the arms of other men. And when she's in the arms of other men, when she believes that Baals and the false gods of this world are fulfilling all of her heart's desires, what does she fail to do? she fails to realize that all she has, all that she has actually does not come from the bales of the gods of this world or the pleasure of this world. Everything she has comes from her true and faithful husband. Everything. So now what happens? Israel is punished for her unfaithfulness. But once again, in the midst of judgment, we see salvation coming forth in one of the most beautiful love songs in Scripture. Look with me in verse 14 of chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valleys of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my There are three things that I want us to look at from this passage. There's a lot more than three things, but we only have time for three things to look at here. 
And I know it can be real easy with the language, the Old Testament language to kind of look through it and be like, huh? I don't understand what's kind of being here, what's being said. But three things. Number one, God's continual pursuit of his bride is evidence in this text. Notice that God doesn't leave Israel where she's at. He, he doesn't leave her in her whoredom. He pursues her. He goes after her. Look at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Again, this is language that we can just kind of look over, gloss over, and be like, huh, that's weird. I don't understand that. What's he talking about allure and taking her into the wilderness? That just sounds even creepy. I don't understand this. Like, what's talking about? This is language of love here. This is love language that's coming out. You know that language that you, that you start saying when you're falling in love with somebody and you're starting to like them a whole lot? And that language that you'll use around one another, but if anybody else hears you, they're just thinking, that's weird. That's, like, don't say that around me. It's that mushy, gushy language that leads you to do all kinds of like, crazy romantic stuff that you can never have thought yourself doing in real life, like making like mixtapes for the person you love. You know what I'm talking about? How many are guilty? Yeah, guilty. Mix CDs, whatever, maybe mix iPod players. I don't know how y'all do it these days. Um, but you know, it, it's working all, you're doing writing love poems. This is love language that is here, alluring her. But now look, who's it being directed to? An unfaithful bride. It's directed to spiritual adulterers like us who have whored after the gods of this world, who have loved others over God, who have attempted to find joy in the things of this world. That's who this love language is being said to. The whore is being allured by the tender love of God, who is determined not to leave his bride in her whoredom. Not going to leave her there. So don't think for a moment today that your sins are unforgivable because they're not. Don't think for a moment that you are too detestable and unclean for God to love because you're not. God knows that you are a spiritual whore and he pursues you still. He knows all the thoughts in your mind, the things that you don't want anybody else knowing, the things that you have done that you don't want anybody else knowing because you're afraid of what they're going to think of you. You wish God didn't know them and you try to think that he doesn't, but he does. And guess what? He still pursues you. That's how much he loves you. He still pursues you. Talk about love. Talk about mercy. Talk about grace. This is on full display from God towards Israel here. Number two, God's continual and lavish provision for his bride. So not only does God pursue his bride, if that were not enough, look at me at verse 15. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, meaning the valley of trouble, a door of hope. He's saying he will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. Not to provide, just to provide just a little bit of context here, the valley of Achor is the first place Israel found herself unfaithful to God in the promised land, all right? The first place where she found herself in the bed of another. But here in the valley of trouble, the door of hope is open wide. In Israel's valley of trouble, in her desperation, the valley of hope is open 
wide as God is calling his adulterous bride home. He's calling her home. He's saying, no, no more trouble, my love. No, no more trouble. It's time to come home. And I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you the luscious vineyards. And I'm going to care for you. And I'm going to love you. And I'm going to give you everything that you need. He, he's a promising to provide for her in abundance. She will not be treated as a whore if she comes home. But as a precious bride. All she has to do is come home. Come home. Three, God's continual commitment to his bride. Look with me at verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Three different times. Three different times God says, I will betroth you to me. She's not saying anything to him here. He's saying, I will betroth you to me. Why is he saying this? What is he doing here? He's reminding his bride of his unconditional commitment to her. He's reminding her of the vows that they made on their wedding day. He's reminding her of the promises that he made to Abraham. He's inviting his adulterous bride to come home and experience a fresh start. He's telling her, come home. Come home. Let's start afresh and anew. Which means by the grace and the mercy of God, even an adulterous whore can be redeemed. that's not shocking enough and I mean shocking in a glorious way then look at the last six words of verse 20 and you shall know the Lord this is shocking not in in, in relation to, to God and his character because it's, it's perfectly consistent with God and his character but it's shocking from our perspective because of the intimacy of what's being said here. And you shall know the Lord because to know the Lord here is being used in the same way as Adam knowing his wife Eve. It's being knowing one's spouse in a biblical sense. It's, it's knowing one's spouse in a matter of extreme intimacy. He said, you shall know the Lord and now consider the context. As God's talking about his fractured marriage with Israel being renewed by the betrothal vows once again. It's pointing to an intimacy that is experienced by newlyweds here. Meaning when Israel returns to God, he withholds none of his blessings from her. None. He's not saying, come home under these conditions. Come home under these stipulations. Come home and you can stay in the guest room. That's not what he's saying here. She is welcomed home like a virgin bride being carried across the threshold and carried straight to the bedroom. That's what we see here. And if that doesn't exhaust and overwhelm our souls enough, let's turn our attention to part four. The redemption of an adulterous whore. Verse 21. 
as we close, we, we, we turn our attention to chapter 3 where, where we see Hosea and Gomer for the, for the last time in this book. And what we find is the love song from chapter 2. What we just looked at in chapter 2 being put into practice through Hosea and being experienced by Gomer. It's the gospel being lived out. It's the gospel on full display. So picking up in chapter 3, verse 1, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. What's happened here? She's run off with another man. Gomer has once again been unfaithful to Hosea. So now what in the world is Hosea left to do here? Divorce her? Stone her under Mosaic law? It's not what we see. While she's in exile with another man, she's been given over to to her lusts and her judgment is finding satisfaction in her own desires, much like the people of Israel. Divorce isn't an option here. There's only one option. There's only one thing on the table. The Lord is telling Hosea, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Can you imagine the pain? Maybe you don't have to imagine. Maybe you've experienced it firsthand. Knowing your spouse is presently in the arms of another has rejected you, hurt you, effectively spit upon you, was nothing to do with you. And the Lord says, go again, love her. Keep your covenantal vows. Invite her back in your bed. Hold, withhold nothing from her. Emotionally, this is hard to grasp. Cognitively, this is hard to grasp. But what does Hosea do? He goes to her. Look at verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and homer and a lethic of barley. His his wife is right now in the arms of another man, and he goes to her. And what's he do? He buys her back. And he didn't just pull out his wallet and say, here's a little money, see you later. That's not what we see here. He gives everything he has to buy her back. Everything he has. He pays, look at verse 2 again. He pays 15 shekels of silver. But that's still not enough, is it? I'm sure that if he could have just paid cash and been done with it, he would have. But what's he do next? He he pulls out, he says, I'm going to pay the rest in barley. He gives everything he has to redeem his bride out of her hoarder and bring her back into his bed. That's the gospel. This is what we have experienced if we are in Christ. And again, what we need to understand this morning is that we are Gomer. We are spiritual whores, and yet God's love for us is so great and so committed that he sent his son to redeem us, to buy us back out of our spiritual whoredom. See, God doesn't tell Hosea to do anything that he himself is not willing to do in extravagantly more ways. He doesn't say, hey, Hosea, you need to go do this. No, he goes, hey, you're going to do this, and I'm going to do even more. I'm going to do even more. Because we are all spiritual whores. 
willing to forsake God's faithfulness for fleeting one-night stands with the pleasures and idols of this world. And as a result, we deserve God's judgment. But instead, he sends Jesus, our groom, to bust down the door of sin and death, to buy back his bride with his blood and call her home. He came saying, that's my bride. You see the spiritual whore down there? That's my bride. And I'm buying her back. I'm giving everything I can to buy her back. And what do we have to do to receive this love? Nothing. We have to come home. We have to receive his embrace. Even when we're, we're feeling like spiritual whores and they're saying, there's no way you could love me. There's no way you could love me. We have to have faith in his promises that he, he's true to his word. He really does love us. He really does forgive us of all of our sins. He really does love us as a faithful husband inviting us back. And that's hard. Because we bear our baggage. We think of ourselves either not for who we actually are or too much of who we actually are. And we forget the grace of God that is demonstrated throughout the gospel. And in the big story of the Old Testament, the big story of the Bible that we've been going through, God's people don't remain in exile forever. A remnant eventually does come home. God remains faithful to his promises, committed to his bride. But his people are left longing for the day when they will be God's people in God's place under his rule. And the Old Testament ends with 400 years of silence. No more prophets, no more kings, just silence. Wondering, has God forgotten us? Is he ever going to come? Is he ever going to redeem us? Is this ever going to happen? Silence. 400 years. Until we hear the words of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And next week we will celebrate his resurrection. We will celebrate the fact that every one of God's promises have come to fruition except one. What's that one? He's still going to return. He will come and he will make all things new. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that day. But until that day comes, we have an opportunity to, to proclaim this good news to the world around us. Let's pray together.
Oh Lord, after hearing such truths as these, it's hard to know what, what to say because thank you just does not seem like enough for all that you have done. But Lord, we, we recognize and admit today we are people who have committed spiritual adultery against you. We have pursued the, the, the little gods of this world and the idols of this world, thinking that they are going to fulfill us. Lord, we, we admit that we deserve your judgment. But we praise you for your covenantal commitment to your people. And today I pray that you, Lord, you will call wandering hearts out of their sin and into your embrace. That you will bring people from spiritual death to life in Christ. I pray you will encourage weary souls through, through the reminders uh, that we see of your continued faithfulness to Scripture. Additionally, Lord, I pray for marriages in this room. I pray for them to be strengthened and remain committed and serve as gospel witnesses to the world around us. Lord, I also want to pray for our singles in this room. I pray for, for that in their singleness, they will serve. Uh, this time will serve as, as a faithful time of, of commitment to you, O oh Lord. That they will see this time as a treasure and not as a burden. Lord, keep them pure for their future spouse. But Lord, we also pray that you will, you will give them the desires of your heart. And then, Lord, that they will see that Christ is enough. Lord, help them to find satisfaction in your embrace. And for the person today who's beating themselves up over past sin, Lord, I pray that they will repent of that sin and receive your embrace today. We ask these things in Jesus' name.